0: Loving Sairam and greetings from Prasanthi Nilayam. This is my third talk on the Veda walkthrough series, if I might call it that. In the two earlier talks, I sort of gave a general introduction to the Vedas. In the present talk, I shall draw pointed attention to one particular Upanishad, the Taittiriya Upanishad, for the simple reason that it not only offers a good sample of what the Vedas are all about at the highest level, but also because we often hear this particular Upanishad being chanted when Swami comes out for darshan. Radio Sai has of course presented earlier a detailed series on this particular Upanishad and I hope that at least some of you have heard that presentation. Many of my present remarks are in fact based on that presentation but I shall be quite brief in my remarks compared to what was offered earlier. I have already pointed out that the Upanishads form a part of Vedanta, Vedanta meaning that which comes towards the end of the Vedas. As such the Upanishads are generally philosophical in content which ought not to be surprising because. As I mentioned in one of my earlier talks, Vedic thought evolved continuously with time. There are many Upanishads, but scholars consider 10 of them to be the most important ones. The Taittiriya Upanishad, which I am now considering, is one of these top 10. Let me start with the precise meaning of the word Upanishad. Swami says that it literally means to sit down near. Who sits near to whom? Well, the disciple sits near to the Guru. And then what? The disciple absorbs wisdom from the Guru and becomes enlightened. This is the traditional and outward meaning of the word Upanishad. The deeper meaning is that the individual must move nearer and nearer to the true inner self or God because God is the ultimate Guru. That is the real way to wisdom. The individual, as Swami often reminds us, is an embodiment of the eternal Atma. That is to say, in a human being, the Atma is cloaked by a mind and a body. This combination is also referred to as the Jivatma. The Upanishads help the Jivatma to embark on a voyage of discovery. Discovery of what? Discovery of the Jivatma's true nature. And what is that true nature? That true nature is the pure, unadorned, unembodied and infinite Atma. As Professor Radhakrishnan, an eminent professor of uh, philosophy, who also incidentally served as the second president of India, he says, the Atma, and I quote, the Atma is what remains when everything that is not the true self is discarded. End of quote. Sadhana is the process by which the jivatma discards all the unnecessary trappings that cloud the Atma. In passing, it is well to remember that the Upanishads represent the highest truth which has attracted seekers from all over the world. Professor Radhakrishnan quotes the Greek scholar Plotinus, who long ago independently observed, and I quote Plotinus, One that seeks to penetrate the nature of the divine mind, must see deep into the nature of his own soul, into the divinest point of himself. He must first make abstraction of the body, then of the lower soul which built up that body, then of all the faculties of the senses, of all desires and emotions, and every such triviality of all that which leans towards the mortal. What is left after this abstraction is the part we describe as the image of the divine mind, an emanation preserving some of that divine light. End of quote. No one can deny that this is a remarkable and independent perception of the essence of Upanishadic truth. But the fact remains that the Upanishads outweigh in sheer quantity as well as depth the insight gained by seekers elsewhere, This is not to comment adversely on other philosophical traditions, rather it is a fact of history that in ancient India, seeking the inner self literally became a way of life for a very large number of people. Thus it is that Max Muller, to whom Swami often makes a reference, says, and I quote, "...it is surely astounding that such a system as Vedanta should have slowly been elaborated by the indefatigable and intrepid thinkers of India thousands of years ago, a system that even now makes us feel giddy as in the mounting the last steps of the swaying spire of a Gothic cathedral. None of our philosophers, including Heraclitus, Plato, Kant or Hegel, has ventured to erect such a spire. In the beginning there was but one, And in the end also, there will be but one, whether we call it Atman or Brahman. End of quote. By the way, this is what Swami Himself has to say about the Upanishads in general. I quote, The Upanishads are not the products of human intelligence. They are the whisperings of God to man. Upanishads are authentic and authoritative as they share the glory of the Vedas. There are 1180 in number, but Through the centuries, many of them have disappeared from human memory and only 108 have now survived. Of these, 13 have attained great popularity as a result of the depth and value of their contents. Adi Shankaracharya raised the status of 10 among all the available Upanishads by selecting them for writing his commentaries. and That is how they became important. Humanity stands to fall or gain by these ten. End of quote. Let me now come to the Thaytriya Upanishad, the focus of the present talk. This Upanishad consists of three parts, each referred to as a valli. The three parts are Ananda Valli, and Valli. The first part, Valli is essentially connected with the theoretical knowledge of the scriptures. Here, a guru instructs his disciples on some basics. Mere theory is of no use and God has to be experienced. Then alone would one know what ananda or bliss is. But bliss cannot be experienced by one who is in the grip of spiritual ignorance. Thus, the first task in moving towards bliss is to get rid of ignorance. The Anandavalli part of the Taittiriya Upanishad deals with this aspect, namely shedding ignorance. Finally, there is the Bhriguvalli which is in the form of a dialogue between sage Varuna and his son Brigo, and deals with the knowledge of the Supreme Brahman. In a sense, it is a recap of Anandavalli but in dialogue form. So much for a brief introduction as to what the three Vallis are all about. Let me now tell you what Swami says about the Taittiriya Upanishad, and I quote: "Brahmavidya or knowledge of Brahman is the specific theme of this Upanishad. It has three sections: Siksavalli, Anandavalli, or Brahma Valli, and Brigu The latter two sections are very important for those seeking Brahmagyana, or knowledge of the supreme." In Sikshavali, certain methods to acquire one-pointedness are detailed. But bondage cannot be destroyed and delusions overcome by this alone. The flux and the turbulence of life are due to ajnana or ignorance and bondage is the result. It is only when ajnana is destroyed that the bonds get loosened and liberation is attained. It is just like saying your train is moving when, in, when the fact is that your train is stationary while it is the train in the adjacent track that is really moving. Watch your train and you know the truth. Watch the other train and you are deceived. There is no use to seeking the cause of delusion. Instead, seek to escape from it. End of quote. In trying to appreciate the deeper implication of Sikshavali, one must have the following mental picture in mind. We must go back thousands of years to Vedic India when young students between the ages of 5 and 18 gathered in small groups and lived with their Guru in an ashram. The ashram was called Gurukulam and the young seekers were called Brahmacharis or the seekers of the Supreme God known in Sanskrit as Brahman. The Guru instructed, guided and counseled the disciples or Sishyas as they were called. Siksha means instruction and thus, Sikshavali is all about the instruction that the Guru gives to the disciples. Okay, now what is what exactly is the meaning of seeking Brahman? Why were these young men in quest of God Almighty? If indeed the young disciples were in quest of the Supreme One, then how come most of them later ended up getting married and thereby immersed in the turbulent sea called family life? Some clarifications concerning these are necessary so that we can appreciate better the teachings and the purpose of the Upanishads. What is truly remarkable about the Vedas and the Upanishads is that they do not dismiss anything in creation. Everything has a place and a purpose and evolution must take place against this background. Thus it is that Swami Nikhilanda says, and I quote, In spiritual evolution, one cannot skip any of the stages. Hence, for those who, prompted by their natural impulses, seek physical pleasures on earth, the Upanishads lay down the injections to discharge various duties and obligations. For those who seek pleasures in heaven, the Upanishads prescribe rituals and meditations by which one can commune with the gods or higher powers. Gods, men and subhuman beings in the tradition of the Upanishads depend on each other for their welfare. The key to enduring happiness lies in cooperation with all created beings and not in ruthless competition. End of quote. The last remark is perhaps relevant in the context of what is happening today when man is not only dominating but even wiping out many living species. Getting back to the uniqueness of the Upanishads, they not only instruct in rituals but besides giving hints of their inner meanings, indicate how man, bound as he presently is, can elevate himself to experience the divine or the ultimate ultimate as Professor Radhakrishnan refers to Brahman. As far as we are concerned, we shall focus primarily on the universal aspects of the teachings of the Upanishads. I shall end this brief introduction to Siksha by quoting what Swami says about that particular valley. He says and I quote, In the Siksha certain methods to overcome the obstacles placed in men's way by the devas and also methods to acquire one-pointedness in mental exertions are detailed. End of quote. Swami adds that by merely discharging in a routine manner one's duties as a good householder, one cannot cross the ocean of life. That calls for something more. And that is what is presented in the second and the third vallis. Let me now quickly present some of the highlights of Sikshavali. As I told you a short while ago, the word Siksha means instruction. Thus, Sikshavali consists essentially of teachings by the Guru to his Sishyas or disciples. The disciples being young, there are a number of practical matters that are given attention. For example, the Guru stresses to the student, that correct pronunciation and intonation are important since they determine the meaning. There must be no slackness in these. There is a particular point and idea behind this advice of the Guru. In later life, many disciples may be engaged in assisting with the performance of Vedic rituals. If rituals are performed, they must be done so in the proper manner, which means that mantras must be chanted properly. I have already called attention in an earlier talk to the importance attached by Kanchi Paramacharya to the sound aspect. The particular instruction of the Guru has a special relevance to this day and age. The performance of Vedic rituals has declined sharply in the last 50 years or so and not many of the few priests available for performing rituals are bothered about proper pronunciation. This is not only unfortunate but also a betrayal on the part of the priest's concern. By the way, one should not imagine that the Upanishads are pure philosophy. Often they offer a mix of the practical with the philosophical. However, even behind the so-called practical, that is the ritual, there is deep philosophy. For example, while performing yagnas, priests offer cooked rice to the sacred fire and chant mantras. People may think it's all a ritual, but in the Gita, Krishna explains the deepest significance of it all. This mantra in the Gita that I am referring to is the brahmarpanam sloka that we all chant before eating. What it conveys in effect is that everything is by God and for God. This perspective must always be kept in mind. Correct chanting of the mantras is no doubt very important but that does not mean that the student reduces himself to a tape record. It's quite likely that through long and disciplined chanting, the student might end up focusing entirely on just the words. To prevent this from happening and to uplift the student, the Guru has also an instruction through which attention of the student is directed to the inner significance of the hymns. The student is advised that he must contemplate upon the hymns and their meanings. According to the Upanishads, Meditation can be done in two different ways with two different objectives. One is with an eye on the benefits that would accrue and the other is without any concern for worldly gains. Thinking about God for realizing worldly gains is all right up to a point but should not be the ultimate goal. The Thayatriya Upanishad, though it leans heavily on high philosophy, does not entirely frown upon having worldly desires. Instead, it recommends that desires must be kept in check and blended with acts that benefit society. Thus it is that the householders are asked to give charity in abundance even while they are praying for wealth. In passing, we may note what Swami has to say about mental processes. He distinguishes three categories, concentration, contemplation and finally meditation. While the former two belong to the worldly mind, The latter is associated with the higher mind, or in simple language, the heart. When one meditates in the heart, there are no desires and this is what Swami really wants. Among other things, the Guru instructs the disciple on the sacred word Om, which Swami once referred to as God's phone number. As is well known, the word Om is chanted before the commencement of any auspicious activity. It is also symbolic of the Creator and His act of creation. The Bible says that the Word is God. That statement is in a sense an echo of Vedic sentiments too. In this connection, we must remember that among the living species, humans alone have the ability to speak. The capacity to speak and the capacity to create languages is an extraordinary gift of God. However, All of us tend to take this incredible gift for granted, treating it most casually. Vedic seers ask their students to meditate on the word, its deeper significance, the capacity to speak and see in all of these the power of God. For us, all this is a reminder that the power of speech must be used only for good and never for bad. The Guru's teachings cover not only aspects of the highest spiritual knowledge, but include also a lot of practical advice. As Swami often reminds us, mere bookish knowledge is of no use. What is equally if not more important is practical knowledge, namely how to apply the principles of spirituality in daily life. Thus the Guru says that when the disciple leaves the ashram and enters life after getting married, He has the duty to give generously, with love, without expectation of anything whatsoever, and never unwillingly. In other words, sharing is the best way of showing that one really cares. Indeed, one must not merely share food and wealth, but most important of all, God's love. That is what the Gita also declares and Swami repeatedly emphasizes. Well, so much for the highlights of Sikshavali. The Upanishads, one should remember, cater to the entire spectrum of aspirants. In a modern school, we have many classes like the 1st standard, 2nd standard and so on, all the way up to high school level classes. Naturally, the level of instruction varies with the class. In the Gurukulas of ancient times, there were no classes because the number of disciples was usually a handful. Keeping this in mind, the hymns catered to students with all levels of spiritual evolution. There was no such thing as the same formula for all. Hence, it was a case of each according to his capacity. The Sikshavali ends with a remarkable exhortation by the teacher to the student. Swami often quotes this exhortation, and besides that, this exhortation is invariably included as a part of the invocation ceremony at the commencement Of the institute convocation. What is it that the Guru tells the disciple? The Guru says, Satyambada, Dharmamchara, Matru Devo Bhava, Pitru Devo Bhava, Acharya Devo Bhava, Atiti Devo Bhava, etc. I am sure you know the meanings. Basically, the Guru says, stick to truth no matter what the difficulty and always abide by righteousness. Regard your mother, father, teacher and guest as God in human form. These are incredible pieces of advice and how relevant these are today. I turn now to the Anandavali portion of the Taittiriya Upanishad. Swami says, The purpose of life is to prepare you to return to your natural habitat. From God you have come and to God you must return. What does this mean? and how does one go about it? That is the issue that is dealt with in Anandavali. We recall first Swami's remark that God is the embodiment of pure bliss, and that is why He once sang, bliss is my form, a song familiar to all of us. The Sanskrit word for bliss is ananda. The word ananda is not easy to translate. Often, ananda is translated as joy or happiness, Both these words are totally inadequate. By comparison, the word bliss does a somewhat better job. Joy and happiness relate to experiences we have in this world. Joyful experiences are no doubt nice, but they also have an opposite, which is pain and misery. By contrast, bliss or ananda has no opposite. How come? Well, that's because Bliss belongs to the non-dual world, that is, the world of God. Inasmuch as man is a child of God, his true nature also is bliss, just as bliss is God's nature. However, once man gets immersed in the world, he easily gets duped and starts readily accepting fakes like worldly and sensual pleasure as being bliss. The senses con him and man gets caught in a trap. Again and again he goes for sensory pleasures, even though they bring misery in the end. The question might be asked, there is a man who diligently follows all that the Vedas prescribe. He is good, he is honest, gives charity and all that. Should this not lead this man to bliss? Well, it's nice to be a good person, perform duties and rituals diligently and so forth, All that would not and cannot ever lead to ultimate union with God. Why? Because of attachment. Even a good man has desires, though they might seem harmless. For example, many people want to go to heaven after death. This may seem alright superficially, but let me tell you, heaven is the wrong destination. That is why Swami says that even sattva binds, it's like a golden rope then what must one do? One must become unbound, which means one must shed all traces of body consciousness. In the Ananda the teacher gently draws the attention of the young disciple to what exactly the goal of life ought to be. One ought not to get sucked in and overwhelmed by the turbulence of life. One must look far beyond, never losing sight of the final destination. And why must one do that? Because that is where eternal joy and bliss or ananda lie. The student must realize that there is a God beyond description by words and beyond the understanding of mind, notwithstanding the enormous capacity and power of the mind. The guru urges the disciple to be bold and seek the supreme being who is beyond the physical world and the mind too. The guru stresses that it is only the one who seeks Brahman who can enjoy eternal bliss. I must also call attention to the fact that in the Ananda the Supreme God of Brahman is described also as Satyam, Jnanam and Anantam, that is as truth, knowledge and the infinite. In fact, Swami often sings a bhajan starting with these words, Satyam, Jnanam, Anantam, Brahma. All these words are from the Ananda In summary, Ānanda Valli is a roadmap to eternal bliss. The Bhrigu Valli, which is the last of the three Vallis that form a part of the Taitriya Upanishad, is essentially a repeat of the Ānanda Valli, but in a different format. In this, Brigu, the son of Rishi Varuna, asks a question of his father about Brahman. The father, who in this case is also the guru, asks the son, who is also the disciple, to think meditate and come back with the answer. In other words, the guru wants the answer to be found by self inquiry and not via tuition. So the disciple does as told and comes back with what he thinks is the answer. The father is not satisfied, that is to say the guru. He says, go back and meditate some more. Why? Because the answer is not complete and represents only a part of the truth. So the disciple goes off comes back, goes off, comes back, and this happens a few times. And every time he comes back, is sent back to inquire more. It's not an infructuous exercise altogether, because in every attempt, the disciple manages to refine the answer he found earlier. And finally, there comes a stage when the disciple who has gone to meditate does not come back to report. Why is that? Because having found that Brahman is nothing but absolute bliss or ananda, he becomes one with it. He has no need for the Guru anymore. He has merged with Brahman. That in essence is the gist of Bhagavali. In other words, it gives hints about how exactly one must inquire while seeking the ultimate truth. Before I wrap up, let us hear what Swami has to say about Anandavali and Bhagavali. This is what He says and I quote, the Anandavalli and Brighavalli are very important for those seeking Brahma or knowledge of Brahman. It is in the nature of things that avidya or ignorance prompts men to crave for plentiful fruits through the performance of actions. This craving produces despondency when there is failure and such attachment binds further, making it even more difficult to become free. Even though the turmoil called life involving birth decay and death is frightening, Man finds that the clutches of attachment are difficult to shake off. Change is the sign of untruth, while constancy or changelessness is the sign of truth. Brahman is truth, that is to say it is changeless. All that is not Brahman, that is the universe that is projected out of Brahman, is subject to change. All objects subject to change come within the purview of the intellect. Here, the knower, that which is to be known and the process of knowing appear separate, but beyond there is oneness, that is Brahman. The Taittiriya Upanishad exhorts you not to swerve from the path of duty and learning. Listening, rumination and meditation are the three steps to realization. Listening refers to the Vedas which have to be revered in faith and learned by heart from a Guru. Rumination of what is learned fixes the notion of Brahman in the mind. Meditation helps in the single-minded attention on the principles so installed in the mind. The Brahmavali teaches while the Brighavalli proves by experience. End of quote. Well, that brings me to the end of what I wish to say today. I hope I have succeeded in giving a broad-brush overview of one of the important Upanishads. Allow me to end by playing for you from our collection, The Three Vallis, just to give you a flavor of how the Taittiriya Upanishad sounds. Thank you for listening and Jai Sairam!
1: Pratyaksham Brahmaasi, Tvameva Pratyaksham Brahma Vadishyami, Rutam Vadishyami, Pratyam Vadishyami, Tanvam avatum, Avatumam, Avatumvaktaram, Om अधा दस्य गुम्हिताया उपनिश दंव्याक्या स्यामहा पंचस्वधिकरणेशु अधिलोका मधिज्योदिशा मधि विद्या PRAJAMADHYATMAM Yatmam, Tama Sagum Hita, Itya Chakshat, Adhati Lokam, Ritibur Rupam, Yorut Rupam, Akashas Sandhi, Vajus Sandhanam, Itya Lokam, Adhadit Agni Rupam, Adit. Rupam, Avas Sandhi, Waid Yutas Sandhanam, Itya अन्ते Adhadi Vidyam, Aja Rupam, Anteva Vidyam, Rupam do rupam, sandhi prajanana gum sandhanam itya dipram adhyaatmam adharanu rupam uttaranu Rupam, wax and he, it was some banam, it yad yat pum, वेदा संधियते प्रजया Shandasam Rishabho, Bishwaroo, Shandu, Beauty, Amrita, Sambabhova, Sameindro, Me Thajas Prunotu, Amritas Yadi, Vadarano, Bujasam, Ramana Kushu Shimidhaya Pitaha, Srutam Me Go Paja Abaham Tibitan Manaha, Chira Matmanaha, Vasagum Sima Anna Panija Sarvada, Tadum Shriyamabaha, Dumasham Pashovit Sahaswaha. Brahachari nasva, Vimajandu brahmachari nasva, Brahmayandrachari nasva, Dhamayandu Brahmachari Sadeja Phyukta Satyam Jnana Manantam Brahma Yove Dhani Hitam Parame Vyomann Sushnutesar Brahmana आकाश वायु
0: वायु रक्षने हैं
1: अग्निरापहा अद्य प्रदेवे ओषधया
0: ओषधी प्योप्यन्म
1: अन्नाकुरुशह सवागेश पुरुषों नरसहमया तस्येदमे वशीरह। I am the children of Pakshaha. I am Uttara Pakshaha. I am Athma. I am Uttam Pradesh. That I pay Prajaprajayante. Yakasha Pradesh. At Attayatabiandyamataha, Anna Gum Hibutan, Tasmaat sarvoshatamuchate, Saragam Vite Namapandi, Yen Namramho Pasate, Anna Gum Hibutanitam, Tasmaat sarvou and now, I'm a good thing. I'm a good thing. I'm a Tasya Purusha Vidhata, Annyam Purusha Vidhaha, Tasya Pranaye Vashiraha, Vyano Dakshinapakshaha, Apana Uttarapakshaha, Agaja Atma, Prudheve Puccha Mradishtaha, Tadaphesa Shloko Bhavati, Pranam Deva Anupranam De, Manushya Pajavaschaye, Prano Hiphutan Ama Tasmā the Hesma Sarva Yushamuchate, Sarva Reva the Yep Pranam Gramopasate, Prano Hiphutan Ama Yuhu, the Hesma Sarva Yushamuchate, the Heshecha Yavachari Atma, Yapur vasyam the smart is the smart, 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 at her rang, get us up, put up, put up, put Pranam Chusro Dramma no Ragumbho Nagumho Bacha Yatova Imani Bhutani Jagante, Yenaja Nijivanti, Yat Brajant, Yabisambishanti, Tad Vijigna Sanswat, Tad Bramheti, Satapo Tadeta, Satapas. Brammed, and not he butal be mani putani jayante and then a jataniji and numbrajantia be Varunampita visanti that vigna, una reba ब्रह्म्ह वे जैज्ञा सस्वा तपो ब्रह्म्हेदी तप्यता तपस्तप्वा प्राणो ब्रह्म्हेदि व्यदाना प्राणा विमानि भूता निजायंते प्राणे नजा प्राणं प्रज्ञं प्याविसं विशंति ति द्विज्ञाया उनारे बबरु नम पितरं रमु पशसारा अधिभगवो ब्रह्मेति मनसा जाता Manam मनम प्रयंत्या विसं विशं तीति तत्विक्याया पुनरेवा बरु नम पितरमु पशारा अधिहिभाग ब्रह्मेदी तुम हो बाजा नि भूता जायंते विख्ञाने न जातानि जीवंती विख्ञानम प्रयंद्य विसंविशन्ती ते तर्थ विख्ञायाद उन्रे ववरुणम पिता रवुपससा राद यह बाचा तवशाप्रुंभविजिक्शुषण